Miss Macintosh, my darling, chapter 44, last part. If for her there seemed a greater finality than perhaps for him, this watcher in the storm. Had not the greatest heroes been prompted by secret cowardice, and was not this often the meaning of their lives? And had not Cousin Hannah said so, that this was why they rode away to war? They had been guilty of some fearful act of cowardice, and this had driven them to greater and greater battles and victories, by no means conclusive, this inner knowledge that they had already failed. But though they might storm great mountains, climbing through monsoon weather to snow-topped snow citadels, never reached by any mountain climber, they had already lost some greater battle than history might record. Perhaps that battle might be the tiniest ever fought, one for which there was no battle music, no great hymnal. They had always thought that the burning moth was more heroic than the burning star, for the star burned because of its own nature, and the moth burned because of its desire. And yet he was not sure, perhaps the star burned because of its desire. He did not know all things being relative. Surely the great hero might be a quavering coward at heart, often Mr. Spitzer had himself timidly observed, and the weakest creature might be the greatest hero. No hero so great as some tiny skiff going down in a great storm, no hero so great as the moth winging toward the star. Unless he guarded against giving honor to the greatest captains and kings, those who had won great acclaim, those whom the world recognized and applauded, he guarded against giving them undue honor even when they were forgotten. He preferred to acknowledge those who had always been ignored, those to whom had been extended no accolade. After all, he had been ignored. Was he not himself in some degree heroic, knocking upon the storm, bearding the sleeping lion in its den? Yet there was some who might say that he had waited until it was safe to come to this great anchorite of suffrage upon the rock reaching through miles of clouds, some who would give him no recognition for his previous efforts to find her out, to catch her in the shining toils of memory. For as to this great lady, was she not weak? frail, timid now, even like all those to whom she had objected with such savagery that it seemed the laughter of the storm. Perhaps she had been killed by her laughter, even like Mr. Spitzer's brother. Perhaps she had been killed by a tear. He knew that there was no such thing as safety, not even for her, certainly not for him. So a lawyer going through her wrestling papers when she was dead, doing his duty, winding up her affairs, which should have been wound up themselves had there been any justice on earth. He had seemed to hear a ghostly footstep, he had seemed to hear a snowflake falling in a dim abyss, or a curl leaf blown, tossed about like a cradle upon the whirlwind of death. He had heard a closing door, perhaps he had heard nothing except what he dreamed, of course, as when he heard the voices in the clouds, or the roaring of a long-tongued surf. He had proceeded with caution, as had always been his custom of never jumping to a quick conclusion, a false conclusion, for then he would have, to re he would have to retrace his steps if that was possible. He could not trust his memory. His judgment might must proceed with circular motions, doubtless because he was a musician before he was a lawyer. The law had restricted him. He had searched through old desks and laid with moon washed mother of pearl, which he had supposed there would be secret drawers, as there were, and he had opened them from many secret boxes by secret keys of trembling silver and gold. Many pigeonholes, many archives, full of records of these great marches through waterless regions and mountains of Palfrey and Sapphire Mountains. Marches over great tablelands, her battles in polyandrous countries and polygamous countries, her battles where the illusion of monogamy pertained, though every couple slept with a ghost, her great rides against patriarchs and sheiks, husbands and lovers and sons, her battles in buried cities, or were those palaces of sandstone and long-limbed white cranes walking with folded wings, had gone through many old mildewed letters. <clears throat> Papers which had rustled in his trembling hands, papers rustling at his feet, so he heavily plowed his way through neap tides under the trembling paper moon, like a white sailor kite upon the wind. 
papers rustling on the floor like the wings of white birds, some written over in spidery hieroglyphs. Whether it's some mad Antony or withered Cleopatra, he could not say, though surely he was confronted by mysteries greater than the Sphinx. For he was confronted by the mystery of the sterile heart begetting the mystery, some letters crumbling into ashes and dust, some in language of the shrouded dead, unintelligible as the language of lip readers in countries where the lips were never seen, where the eyes were never revealed, some in foreign tongues which he could not read and never would have translated, for they were those languages which could never be translated by the greatest translator. Languages for which there were no words, and he had forgotten our origin. And we had forgotten our origin. And of what avail, when all things were translated, even like the cryings and the voiceless winds, the voices of rasping clouds, or the far barkings of moonlight dogs, many which had read less like letters to a suffragette than like love letters to a great love, perhaps to a dead love of God. Was there no key to open the human heart, no locksmith to cast the moles for this key, silver or gold, to open the zigmatic lock? Perhaps this mystery was the key, he had told himself, and there was no key but the mystery. There was no orchestration to include every flute note, whisper. Perhaps this great suffragist's life provided the only illumination ever given upon that darkness which was never reached by light, the long fingers of rosy light reaching through the clouds at dawn, never reaching her. Certainly her death did not denigrate, did not strip bare as when the leaves were blown from a tree in the wind, did not decrease the mystery of her life, but rather had increased it, even like his own, Mr. Spitzer had found. It was inclined to believe now that this truth was seminal, that all, that all other lives were increased by this great mystery of death, that all, who had that all who lived had already died. Perhaps a leaf had fallen in the wind a thousand years ago, or a star had fallen through a cloud. Perhaps a door had slammed in a distant city. Perhaps a snail had crept out of its shell in the sand. The tide had swept over a salt flat pale as marble under the dead boom, Mr. Spitzer had observed. Death happened in many ways, more ways than love, some which were quite subtle, some which were bold. It often seemed to him that the only wisdom or understanding which was his had come after the great event. It seemed to him that in all other lives this was the case, that all were, were at the misty borderline defining unknown realms. He would have liked to have asked of every whispering seashell upon a lonely beach, what was your past life, and what waves washed over you, and what messages do you bring from a dead love to a dead love? Indeed, he once found an old seashell written over with a mystical writing, for all dead loves and all remembered things. I have traveled through many seas. He would have liked to have asked of every fallen leaf. Did you fall twice? Perhaps once in a dream. Of every starfish. Is this your second coming? Of every whirlwind or shape of darkness. Is this your resurrection eternal life? This passage? And of the dolphin dying, gasping upon the rock, under the star dying at a clouded dawn, as the light dies in lover's eyes. Is this as it was, ever will be? Is this? Is there only this dying moment? Must not the lover die of love? Staring with enlarged myopic eyes, and oh, what difficulties of vision were ever his. Mr. Spitzer had read the, these old papers shaking in his shaking hands, as if he felt like the wind-blown poplar lighted by fish lights had read these old papyrus scrolls like faded lilies crumbling to the touch, perhaps had read each paper twice, and if at times with a more than natural hesitation, if at times the print was blurred, as if he read by moonlight, by one moonbeam streaming through a dark cloud, had done so with no more difficulty than he might read his own signature years after he had signed his cleft with a snail riding the moon and pearled sands, moving like clouds marked by waves when the moon had faded, signs of stars drifting through plumed clouds, Messages left by waves of blackbirds flying on a windy day of dissonance, like his musical notes, when the wind blew around his dark cape, 
his cape ringing like a bell. Leaves and prints on stone, snowflakes falling from a dark cloud and melting as they touch down. Ah, uh, how many shapes of snowflakes, cartwheels, earthborn asters, stars, flowers, lace and pillows through which I stared. Yet lie could not help break. Yet lie could not help being almost perpetually surprised that so many people had written to this great suffrage captain as if it were she who held the key to the mysteries of the complex human heart growing in complexity. For was not her heart in darkness and in terrifying whirlwind? He had asked when she was dead. And what should she know of life and light and love and what human being had ever touched her? There was no open sesame to these mysteries, he thought. Was she not shrouded by the darkness? Had she ever been revealed? And had there been even a moment of illumination lighting every heart, living or the dead, or that which was both the living and the dead, that which was a shadowed heart? Her star had passed long ago. Darkness now was hers. Surely no Judas cock would ever crow again at dawn, and never would there be another dawn, he had thought as the clouds settled over her. Sometimes that whirlwind was like a great cone, a great cone will burst, standing on its apex, a shape of darkness through which one saw no spark or transitory star passing, like a first love or last love, and not one firefly gleaming in a distant cloud. And what should this old maid ever know of love and all the ramifications of the human heart, unhuman heart? What desire had ever been hers, or what ambition? What goad, spur, motive? Never had any other great suffragette received so many confidences, heard so many secrets of so many lives. Mr. Spitzer was almost inclined to believe that she had never been a suffragette at all. The suffrage was her mask. People had simply misunderstood her. Stars had spoken, leaves had whispered, waters had roared with voices. Pebbles had declared that they were tombs, tombs of scimitar moths. Clouds had whispered, rustled, sobbed, and there were falling snowflakes singing in her ear, her ear winding like a conch. Sand grains had whistled on a lonely star, and tides had whispered like the skirts of that great desert king, and nightbirds had sung among the salt-starred leaves. So many people had whispered their confidences to her, pouring their secrets into her ear as into a great stone ear, a chamber of echoes, as if it were she who knew most of love and death and marriage, things she had never experienced in this life so far as anyone had known. Yet perhaps her admirers were right. Perhaps he knew most of love who never loved, and he knew most of death who never died, Mr. Spitzer thought. And he knew most of marriage who never married, was never committed to one road which had its ending. For sometimes the happiness of married couples was so secretive, so remote, that it was as if they had withdrawn from life. It was as if they were dead, locked in an everlasting embrace. Perhaps the greatest love did not find its form of expression, either human or divine. No rose, flame, book, swan trumpeting down a cloud, for all would fail. The light would go out of all eyes.